When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Modern Day Debate. Um, my name is Carissa and I'm going to be your host for tonight. And today we are debating whether we as a country should have more or less democracy. Uh, we're really excited to have Brenton and the Distributist on today. We've had both of them on the channel before. So really happy to have them back. Um, it's going to be a really fun debate tonight. So thank you all for joining um, so we are a channel that hosts debate on science, religion, and politics. So if you do enjoy controversial debates, consider hitting the, the subscribe button as we have many more coming up. In fact, as you'll see on the bottom right of your screen right now, we have a Kickstarter going to cover the honorarium for a big debate with Michael Shermer and Mike Jones on whether Christianity is dangerous. If you'd like that debate to happen, it's only three bucks and we'll make this debate go live. The link to pledge that Kickstarter campaign is in the description box below and you can sign in with your Facebook account if you don't want to make a Kickstarter account. It's a lot, um, but it's a new idea, so we're trying to help explain the Kickstarter stuff to people in detail. So with that all out of the way, we're going to go ahead and give Brenton and the Distributist a little bit of a chance to introduce themselves. Um, Brenton, since you are going first, I'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, also if you like either or both of our speakers tonight, their descriptions, um, their bios are also in the description box below. So be sure to check those out. Brenton, tell us what we can find at your link. Great. So yeah, my name is Brenton Lengel. Uh, I am a playwright, uh, former uh, radio personality and activist with Occupy Wall Street, uh, and I'm a Ringo-nominated comic creator. Uh, I'm also a backer, by the way, of the Modern Day Debate Kickstarter <laughs> and um, my own Kickstarter for Snow White Zombie Apocalypse. Uh, my comp my Ringo-nominated comic series uh, is, uh, we just broke 20 grand and we have 57 hours to go. So if people are going on Kickstarter, please pledge to modern day debate and then come over and see if you can grab some comic swag and get in on the on the ground floor of this series <laughs> wonderful and distributist what can you tell the, the audience about your link <laughs> well i guess i could say that i'm a <clears throat> i could say i'm a youtuber i've been a YouTuber, youtuber for about four years doing what i broadly consider to be distant right content reactionary content I talk about politics and the culture war mainly and some contemporary political issues as they come up. I mainly make video essays and I used to make a lot more of them before my schedule got crazy, but I, I'm still chugging along. So if you're patient, uh, please give me a sub. Wonderful. And actually there is going to be one other little participant in tonight's debate. Uh, my son decided to forego his nap, so he might be joining us for a part of it. Um, I'll just run and get him during the, um, during the openings um, and he will be muted, but you might see him. <laughs> so, um, but that shouldn't uh, interrupt anything. Um, 
without further ado, Brenton, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to you. The topic tonight is democracy, and this is a subject that I think about quite a lot. Uh, throughout my life, I've actually held a variety of positions on it. Uh, everything from that insufferable twit in your English class who says, you know, we live in a republic, not a democracy. Yes, freshman year, Brent, we know that. Everyone knows that. Shut up. Your shoelace is untied. To having argued for and managed successfully, uh, and uh, to having argued for and as a manager successfully implemented a serviceable level of workplace democracy uh, in my place of business, which for the record resulted in my team being one of the highest producing of any in the industry, coupled with some of the lowest turnover rates of any manager in my company. Uh, the point is, uh, with the 2020 elections behind us, uh, an election in which Donald Trump lost, not as spectacularly as I would have preferred, but still decisively, and you're a complete corn cob if you think otherwise. Uh, a lot of people are talking about democracy. You don't have to look very far to find any number of opinions and pithy phrases about it, usually running the gamut from frustratingly salient, democracy is the worst system of government, except for all the others. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to get back to unilaterally starving India. To the downright idiotic, Democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. Seriously, with regard to that last one, what the hell? Why would wolves, literal apex predators, need to vote on whether or not they are going to eat some sheep? They're freaking wolves. No voting required. They just eat the sheep. There is no need to bring Robert's rules of orders into that equation. So what even is democracy and why do utter dinguses hate it? Well, to understand that, we must understand the inverse, autocracy, which would be a dictatorship, commonly in the form of hereditary monarchy, a technocratic CEO, or a fascist strongman. And with respect to actual fascist leaders from history, please note that I am using the word strongman between two ginormous quotations. Seriously, have you even seen these people? Their absolute best example, Benito Mussolini, looks like Aleister Crowley's basic cousin, or Marlon Brando after the poor guy let himself go. But I digress. Autocracy is hierarchy, it is authority, it is power, when none of those things have been properly justified. See, with very little exception, when someone's authority is justified, they don't have to use force. People follow them willingly because they have judged for it to be in their best interest to do so. It's generally only when power becomes insecure and insane that force must be administered. Now, there are exceptions, of course, because humans are not always entirely rational beings. Thomas Jefferson famously said, if men were angels, there would be no need for government. Brenton Lengel responds to that mercury-addled, slave-owning rapist, if men are devils, what's the point of selecting special devils and giving them funny hats and letting them rule over the others? That would seem to me to be a uniquely cruel and stupid thing to do, no matter how nice the hats are. Now, don't take what I'm saying too piously there. I am, of course, speaking broadly and making some fun of it, but I'm doing that for a very specific re reason. Democracy, as the inverse of autocracy, is in essence the idea that all members of a society ought to have a say in its governance. And as uh, all of us are members of our society, we all ought to have some power when it comes to how things are done. This is a painfully intuitive idea, but it is one that far too many average people reject. Uh, there are many reasons for this, but chief among them, I think, ironically, uh, is a kind of internalized self-loathing. You want to give people power? How dare you? I'm one of those. I'm a people. And I, I'll have you know, sir, that I am a trash fire. Yes, yes. 
we're all a trash fire. We're all sinners. We're all untrustworthy, all salted with a certain level of unrespectability. That is why I said what I said about Churchill and Thomas Jefferson and any other hairless ape with delusions of grandeur. Because when all is said and done, to quote Shakespeare, for within the hallowed crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable and humored thus, come at last, and with a little pin bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king. I am reminding you that these people who currently govern our world and who did govern our world are mortal, fallible, human. And every human has a dark side. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Evil is real and fear of evil is most often why people reject democracy. They reject it as mob rule or as the worship of the mediocre. That fear drives them to think that someone else is genuinely better than others. And really, even if you believe that you are that someone else, that's just you hating yourself with extra steps. That's why Donald Trump ran for president in the first place. He hates himself. He hates himself because his father didn't love him. And so he makes a big show about how great he is and does everything in his power to fill that hole with food and sex and significance and power. That is what a lifetime of insane privilege bored inside him. That is why he cannot accept his defeat. You look at the Proud Boys rioting in the street. You look at the QAnoners drifting further and further into fantasy. You look at all the people who would make Donald Trump a king. Those are all perfect examples of the extra steps that come with hating yourself. To grant others power grants the possibility of error. To be able to act is to be able to do evil. Yet there is no alternative because that's what freedom is. It's choice. And as tempting as it is to go down the road where we attempt to eliminate choice, to give over control of our lives to another or to a system, which is really just another, as all systems are made of and administered and administrated by people, to anything that we imagine to be so much greater than ourselves, we turn to a road of dictatorship by degrees. Inevitably, we put a crown on a devil. And then that devil does what it is the devils do. So when I argue for democracy, I'm not selling you some airy utopia. I'm not moralizing about how things ought to be. I am telling you, I am begging you to take a clear-eyed, hard-nosed look at reality and realize that despite our irreputable state, or irreputable state, all of society nonetheless depends upon us trusting one another. To live with freedom requires faith, not in the abject, but real faith that you actually put into practice. It means trusting your neighbor. It means trusting your countrymen. It means trusting strangers that you've never met who may be in another city or another state or halfway around the world. And know that you are putting your faith in a process that has the backing of evolution. Synergy is what occurs in nature from the root word synergos, meaning working together, as in cooperation giving rise to a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. That is the polis. That is the human community. That is the reason we have survived on this planet for 250,000 years. And as messed up as it is and constantly seems to be, uh, there is an ancient Taoist saying that people who mistrust themselves and one another are doomed. That can't be solved by a strong man. That can't be solved by weapons or technology or rules because all of these things require human input to function. That can't be solved by rooting out corruption because we are all corrupt. The way to solve this problem, to solve this paradox at the center of the human condition is to trust ourselves, to govern our own communities and to trust uh, that when we make mistakes, 
uh, we will be our mistakes will be restrained and mitigated by others. And that when those others fail, we and our fellows will be there to pick them up and put them back in line. We are our brother's keeper, as well as our sisters and everyone in between. We currently live in the most advanced and sophisticated society in human history, and we desperately need to take the training wheels off society, lest uh, it tear itself apart. The way forward is not to try to gain or maintain power over society that will only continue to disturb it and worsen the social decay that we have already seen. The way forward is to trust it and know that when you're saying that to society and to others, you're also saying it to yourself. Because as I said, you're one of those. You're a society. And so you're saying, let's see what you're gonna do to, your, to others and to yourself. You govern a great state as you would cook a small fish, which is to say carefully and as little as possible. The human species has been ready to fly for a long time. It's time to leave the nest. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brenton. Distributist, it is you, your turn. Okay, so 10 minutes? 10 minutes. All right, so thank you, Brenton, for your speech. I have to clarify, <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that you're not de debating against Donald Trump and Donald Trump's not a monarch and, and monarchy is not in fact a majority opinion among many Americans. As for most things in these sort of Oxford style debates, we're kind of trapped by the resolution. Believe it or not, I'm not really anti-democracy in an absolute sense whatsoever. For me, it's a tool. As it was for many of the ancient thinkers, uh, some of them I think Brenton quoted, <laughs> Oddly enough, uh, these ancient thinkers from Aristotle to Shakespeare didn't have a uniformly positive view on democracy. Uh, neither did the founding fathers who produced democracy. It had, they, they thought it had a lot of disadvantages. And in the course of the 200 years or so since the founding, uh, we seem to have forgotten a lot of these disadvantages. And basically we've swallowed democracy's own propaganda back on itself, right? We've essentially internalized a lot of these problems and, and we think democracy works in a way that it really doesn't. <clears throat> the core problem with democracy is that we think that there are, there are essentially three main human problems with social organization that are more or less eternally always with us. There's the, there's the problems of what we would call the iron law of oligarchy, which is that we always have rulers. There's the problem of politics, as I say, which is, uh, the, the classic phrase, uh, key custodes, ipsos custodes, who watches the watchman. And then there's the problem, the second problem of politics, which is if you're going to take from somebody, who are you going to take from? Uh, democracy, the main seductive problem of democracy is that it convinces us at all times that it is the solution to these three problems. It convinces us that somehow by the effort of voting, we are simultaneously the owners of society and also the people who are ruled over. Uh, this is a quote from Joseph de Maestra. He says, well, the people are sovereign, but sovereign over who? Themselves? This is frankly a nonsensical statement. The difficulty is, is that none of these problems are solved by democracy. They're only obscured by them. This doesn't mean that democracy is not a useful tool, but it doesn't really do the things it's supposed to do. There's no way that in a nation of 300 million people, uh, you as a voter are really exercising any political power or worth anything. Uh, this is not something that, uh, that, that can actually occur. Furthermore, despite the fact, just in informational grounds alone, 
the fact of the matter is there are going to be rulers. Uh, these rulers are going to be have their interests. They're going to be expressed. And regardless of anything we do at the democratic level, these interests are going to take effect. Sort of the three main political problems still manifest. We have this notion, it's kind of ridiculous, that democracy is this big deliberation, that democracy is some kind of conversation we're having with ourselves. Again, I don't know how familiar Brenton is with, with this sociology, but this is simply not the case. Uh, we, we know that people don't process detailed conversations and decisions at a large scale very well. You can change the inputs of a democracy and get different outputs. Uh, for instance, very classically, you can rephrase the same political policy over again and people will have entirely different opinions on it. Classic case, Medicare for all. Say, do you want Medicare for all? Everyone will say yes. If you say, if they understand that Medicare for all in almost all circumstances mean that they lose their current medical plans and have to go on a one size fits all system, most people reject it. That's an enormous swing and it just comes purely from phrasing. People respond to narrative constructions and linguistic constructions of how the issue is framed. And in a democracy of 300 million people, that's pretty much the entire game. Furthermore, we also know from sociology that things like demographics and heritability also have a huge input. We know, for instance, that we know, for instance, that people inherit their political beliefs. We know, for instance, that people's political beliefs largely depend on where they live. This is not because they've, they've all cogitated and come to the same conclusion because they live in New York rather than Arkansas. It's because the culture and the values usually control the vote, voting behavior. As such, what we're essentially saying here is that the main inputs, the most predictable inputs of how a polis behaves are essentially in the hands of the politicians. By tweaking the inputs of both the narrative and also the demographic composition of a country, you can get desired outputs. For instance, if we had had the, dem the immigration policy of the 1950s for the last 40 years since 1965, Democrats would have lost every single election, hands down. Furthermore, if we had a, if we had a completely open political, uh, open immigration policy, uh, major political parties in India would probably overwhelm both the Democratic and Republican Party. So the, the politics completely changes based on demographics. Uh, so, and so I think there's this, this myth, there's this mythology going on that a country of 150 or 300 million people are actually having a conversation. Uh, furthermore, and this is sort of another one of my points, um, democracy always means politicization. And this is something that I think people should do an exercise in their own minds. Whenever someone says they want to democratize something, and this is not a group of 20 or less people, that means they want to politicize it. Politics always plays a role inside democracy. And uh, the, as such, what happens here is, is people have interests that are at, at war with each other. Uh, they go into a democratic system and then somehow through the process of voting, we come out with a conclusion that's supposed to be the process of all of us thinking together. Uh, this is never the case. What the conclusion is, is it's, it's usually the decision of a specific set of leaders commanding a specific coterie of people that, are, that have designs on a specific purpose. Uh, is, this, is this at all fair to the minority? Absolutely not, it rarely ever is. And both our founding fathers and really everyone before, <laughs> before the 20th century understood this. We still have to deal with the fact that we, do, we have to ask questions like who watches the watchers? We have to ask who our leaders are and we have to ask who their interests are. Democracy does not mean that we rule ourselves. 
And this kind of gets me, you know, this kind of gets me to the question of where we are in the contemporary world. We, we have right now, we have an incredibly divided, uh, we have incredibly divided and politicized country. The, the source of this politicization is not a lack of democracy. Uh, you know, there's three things I think that might be substituted for democracy that I kind of saw forming in Breton's arguments. There's three things that I'm absolutely for, and that's subsidiarity, the practice of making sure that power is concentrated among more local institutions. There's the power of consensus, which is that if a political body uniformly wants something, that's usually a good idea. And then there's the general notion that a political or popular will can tear down somebody who's manifestly incompetent or who's manifestly treacherous. This is the kind of democracy our founding fathers envisioned, where democracy isn't really a driver of policies, but a safeguard against absolute tyranny. But once we step away from that, we realize that the problem of politicization and cultural divides over values, the act of voting doesn't solve any of these problems. All it does is encourage the people inside the division to create coalitions with each other that are entirely cynical, get to 60% of the population, and then brutally rule over the 40% that's left in the minority. And democracy will allow for that. Worse than that, and this is the, my real case here, the real problem with democracy is that it clouds what's actually going on. We are always ruled by oligarchs, regardless of whether they're democratically elected. We are always ruled by people that have their own interests at heart. And if those interests are far away from us and divorced in terms of culture, they are very, very, very not likely to have us as part of their uh, affinity group. Uh, so those problems are maintained, but what is made worse by democracy is the fact that now those self-interested rulers can rule as if they were the population itself. They can rule in the name of the people. And this has been a classic tactic of democratic rulers. They essentially wield autocratic power. They essentially wield avaricious and sometimes tyrannical power. And then when we turn around and try to make them accountable to their own actions, they simply inform us that they're representatives of the people. They're representatives of your will itself. And so they can escape any kind of accountability for their actions. A king can't do that. A king is formally declared to be the ruler. He can't hide behind the people like democratic rulers do. I might close with this. Uh, Brenton said, you know, when he came across the adage that the democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on who to eat, he, had, he asked the question, well, why would, why would the wolves vote with the sheep uh, to eat it? Uh, the, the answer is simple. What if the wolves did not want to admit to the sheep that that's what's happening? That what's, hap what's actually going on is a predatory relationship. And the voting, the democracy element simply clouds that. It hides it behind a veneer so that you can convince everyone that when you eat the sheep, the sheep is in fact eating itself. Again, this doesn't solve the problem of democracy. Democracy is a tool but it's a very poor tool. It's a, poor, it's a tool that has had well understood flaws in it, you know, going back for thousands of years. These have been understood and only recently forgotten. And again, it kind of clouds a more mature understanding and a more mature conversation of what we're actually gonna do about these problems. I'm fine with democracy being part of the solution, but it has to be honest about what its disadvantages are and what it's actually doing, which in my estimation is not very much. It's simply repositioning the relations of power and not really challenging how they operate in any real way. And with that, I guess we can get into the question and answer, answer period or whatever comes next. All right, so um, what will come next is about an hour of open discussion, but if you do mm -hmm. have a question, 
definitely put it into the super chat and we will get to it at the end of the stream. We have about 30 minutes allocated for question answer. Um, but with that, we can get into the open discussion. Great. Uh, so to take, um, th there's a number of things that I wanted to jump into on here. And I'm glad that, you know, when looking through the opening statement, um, you found some spots where we can come together. And I think I can actually agree with you uh, on, on what those uh, positions are. Um, the one thing that I wanted to uh, bring up, uh, so the iron law of oligarchy, and I, I figured you were going to bring this up. Um, the, the problem, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problem with the iron law of oligarchy is it is true in a certain sense, uh, in that nothing is perfect, and therefore there will be no such thing as a perfectly governless society. There, there will always be politics. There will always be leaders emerging. Um, you, you can't yes. avoid that. But also that implies something very different uh, because then what we're talking about is matters of degrees. Um, and also- well, you, I, I would say, no, we're, we're, we are asking ourselves, how do we make a leader's interests align with the people he's ruling over? Not the mechanism by which we give that leader power. And that's where I'd like to refocus it. As I would like to say, you know, a, 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 a squire who lives next to you or a judge that's unelected who lives next to you is gonna be more accountable than a democratic politician who you voted for, who lives thousands of miles away and who, for whom you are just one vote in a sea of 300 million. I guarantee you that that proximity and geography is gonna matter more than that. I mean, I'm not vote. gonna disagree with you on that, but then we run into the problem that we do need to administrate a large society with, uh, you know, the, how, how many people do we have on the planet right mm -hmm. now, 7 billion? Yeah, well, I guess I would ask you, though, if subsidiarity is the main way that we deal with tyranny, the democratic age of the 20th century has been one in which much of the subsidiarity of past ages has been destroyed, oftentimes destroyed in the name of democracy. So, so, so can, you, can, you, uh, you know, can you define what you mean by subsidiarity there? I'm not, subsidiarity uh, I, is the principle in Catholic social justice that says that power should be located as close in terms of affinity groups and in terms of geography to the place where it's executed as humanly possible. Okay. So subsidiarity, and this is sort of the Chestertonian, G.K. Chesterton, who's part mm -hmm. of my, he was a big democracy advocate, but for himself in orthodoxy, he says that the main core principle of democracy, you know, he's using it in the opposite way you do. He says the main core position is that people should make their own decisions. Uh, and and it's not really voting. Voting is just is it sort of symbolic of that. Mm -hmm. um, so so subsidiarity. The problem is, I think Chesterton was wrong about this. Is that uh, subsidiarity does not seem to be related to democracy. Democracy does not in the, what we've seen in the 20th century make subsidiarity more common. Sure. In some ways, it makes it less. So I'm not going to disagree with you too much on subsidiarity. I, I haven't used that term for it, but that actually sounds mm. very similar uh, to anarcho-communist uh, ideas um, with how ANCOMs would structure society, uh, ideally, with making smaller communities um, uh, the, the focus, the central, uh, the central point of society, as opposed to these large nation states. So I mean, the ultimate I, subsidiarity in the distributist mind would be property. Right. And I think that's where we mm -hmm. differ from ANCOMs, right? Oh, it that, depends. You know, property An is the, giving a family property is the fundamental form of subsidiarity. 
Well, and once a, that property is destroyed having, by a larger authority. Yeah. Well, no, a family having property is perfectly fine in the in an anarcho-communist society. The it, anarchists typically, um, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, uh, first person to do to advance political anarchism, famously said, most famously, property is theft. But he also followed that up with property is liberty and property is impossible. And it was a st- series of three. Uh, dialectical statements, almost like uh, Zen Cohen's. Um, yeah, I appreciate that as a is an impossible riddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but I don't. I don't point. think that that is. I, I rarely hear the other two legs. Of yeah, the, yeah. Uh, well, it's because dialogue. everybody pays attention to the property is theft because that's the big mm-hmm. sort I hear of that one sticker thing. But you know, when it comes to actual anarchist uh, political philosophy, um, it's. Uh, it's very different. So anarchists tend to be fine with property in the sense of uh, occupation and use. So mm. the idea essentially being, and I think we talked about this uh, the time I was on your channel, um, was that uh, property that can be taken and held by a single individual or single family or single community and is used by them is perfectly fine. The issue w- with property, and you know, this I'm just suddenly realizing is slightly uh, off topic for the debate, though. I, yeah, I, I, I guess. Yeah. The, the thing is, is when someone owns property that they do themselves do not either possess nor use and that relationship only becomes possible when it is guaranteed by violence and the threat of violence so the the, the way this kind of comes back to it if we do want to talk specifically about property and the administration of um i guess um public policy um is we're going to have to talk about like the role of the state and the role of uh, violence within the political process. The only way I could see managing that is if there was a definitive authority, because the difficulty is that this use it or lose it attitude, it's incredibly subjective. It's, it's the most objective thing imaginable. Well, uh, I mean, you know, I, no one's going to say that, you know, is, is your car not, I, I didn't use my, I could be on lockdown. I haven't used my car mm-hmm. for six months. Can someone just take off with it? I mean, right. I would like, argue that, I mean, that would be like yeah. the logic of that. So unless you have someone like, so, so essentially the power of property is mm-hmm. now dedicated to the judges who determine what use actually implies. And you return to the problem of politics. Well, so I understand the objection that you're, you're raising there and I don't want to get too far afield, but what I will say is, is that um, all property is entirely subjective. Property does not exist within um, like physical material reality. It is a human convention created by human law and created by force and the uh, and the threat of force. So th- there, we think we like to think in the modern world of property as like a real thing in the same way that we like to think of like money as a real thing. But it's not real. It's just uh, I, a I know. I mean, convention. power power. And power is intimately related to power. The power and property and violence are abstractions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, but if social organization breaks down, you are going to feel those abstractions in a very real way, very quickly. And you know, so I think this, I think this, this is sort is, of a but, get out clause. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had family members who lived through World War II and their notion of property was very real, <laughs> you know, it's what you have to sustain your life. Your life cannot be sustained without property and without your disposal. Well, yes, resources. that would be so property. The idea that this is an abstraction is 
I, I feel this is sort of like, you know, this cop out, like everything's a social construct, therefore we can just dismiss the problems that are obviously well, endemic. It's not so much that we can dismiss the problems, it's that you can't uh, uh, object to one form of property because it's subjective um, while appealing to another form of property that is also equally subjective. No, 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 no. But but my, my objection was the idea that this could be maintained without a very powerful authority declaring and judging over what is use and what is not. If if uh, if uh, if there was a system of judges or, or authoritarian mm -hmm. aristocrats who went through the land, uh, pointing at objects and declaring it unused, uh, that would work. Uh, but in that I mean, case, they, they those would judges probably would virtually just, be kings. Yeah. yeah, I think they probably um, just declared that everything was their property because it's what they did the first well, time. Sorry okay. to interrupt, um, but if we could just wrap yeah. this around back to democracy. Sorry. Yeah, we we should do a property debate the, yeah. the question is how to control these judges these watchers who watches the watchers how do mm -hmm. you control the people with power you're always going to have people with power and now you need to figure out how you're going to control them and, yeah, and I, I would argue you would control them by minimizing the amount of power that they have by empowering as many people as possible uh, in as in as even a uh, form as possible I've, I've said this before like Traditionally, since the rise of the state 6,000 years ago, humans have plugged power vacuums with several large boulders, either in the form of, uh, you know, monarchs or presidents or whatever, large concentrations of power wielded in very few hands. I say what you do is instead take those boulders and grind them to, to gravel or sand, and then each grain of sand uh, checks the other grain of sand, and we function via, as I said earlier, synergy. Um, well, well, hold on. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the thing. I mean, this is where we fundamentally disagree. Having having different power relationships check each other, in my opinion, is a, a, an effective way at, at 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 controlling power. That is real. There's two ways I think of controlling power. The first one is to make sure that the leaders, that their interests are as aligned as possible, that, that they have mm -hmm. the same culture and the same values as the people that they rule over. And also that their economic futures depend on the, the economic future, the prosperity of the people that they rule over. The second one is to have opposing people uh, essentially in opposition, you know, the mm -hmm. systems of balances, those two things I understand. Uh, the problem with democracy is as soon as you get that democracy uh, above about 150 people, uh, your ability for that democracy to control any amount of power is minuscule. It's a procedural speed bump at that point. I now, mean, that it, would it can depend be on how you do, slowing how you power do down a little bit, but it's not going to control the main problems that we see today. What and, and what, in your estimation, are the main problems that we see today? The main problems we see today are the fact that the country is fundamentally culturally divided in terms of values. There is no way that blue America will respectfully rule over red America and probably the same vice versa. And there's no way that either of them want to be ruled over, uh, ruled by each other's choice of rulers. Uh, I yeah. don't think this can be solved by democracy. Like, yeah. what is it? Mm -hmm. You get to 60% and then rule over red America with an iron fist over their objections? I, I to think me, that's that, ridiculous. Yeah. I don't even see the point in that, right? Yeah, well, I think that we agree on that in the sense that um, it's it's not a good idea, but I would say that that fundamentally is not a problem with democracy. That's a problem with a lack of democracy. Um, but, but democracy Whereas, encourages that, right? Because it's saying now, if you get to sixty percent, you know, or in the case of Joe Biden, fifty-one percent, maybe, right? Like fifty-one percent, maybe. Well, and now you significantly get more than that. It was like fifty-one yeah, well, percent in terms of. It doesn't matter. Yeah. That, like it's 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 not sixty. 
right? Mm -hmm. And even 60 would be, you know, in my mind, egregious. But but the notion, and, and I hear this echoed everywhere in progressives, is, is we got 60%, that means we rule you forever. I mean, mm -hmm. come on, you would never accept that if the shoe was on the other foot, and, and nobody would. It's, it's a ridiculous concept. At that point, it literally I mean, I, is. I, I will agree with you on that, which is why I think we would need to fundamentally, because I think we would need to fundamentally reorganize the way that America interacts with democracy. I think a lot of the anti-democratic checks and balances that were put in by the founding fathers because they were slave-owning aristocrats with wooden teeth. Um, like when they built these systems, they built them because they feared the common man. They feared mm. their ability and they wanted to set them themselves up essentially as nobility in all but name in the Americas. Now there, that's granted a cynical view and I don't think it's the whole view of what they did because there are some brilliant things that have been put into uh, the American system. Uh, it has endured for, uh, you know. I, I don't think that this problem derives so closely to George Washington. I think that this problem of cultural division is much more contemporary. Yeah. Well, I, you know, George Washington is the guy we asked to be king and he said, no, in my opinion, that makes him one he of He might as well have said yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, he essentially, you know, what, what people don't know this, but essentially uh, the, the democratic government of America after the revolution was taken over by a coup and George Washington was put in place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, really? we, the first president of the United States was not George Washington. And you can look that up in history if you want. I don't even remember. I'll have the to guy's check that out. Was. I wasn't, I was not aware of a coup. I, I would have figured, I, I would have figured that would have featured pretty prominently in a people's history of uh, the United States. No, the first government of the United States was the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, after about what, three years, uh, basically the aristocrats just said, no, you're done. We're informing you that you're no longer the government or the government. Hmm. You know, here's this guy we voted on, George Washington, you know, who happens to be the former general of the entire military and who they're all more loyal to than you. You're gone. You're done. Yeah. I mean, there's violent. there's a bit of real politic going on there. And I know that the, the story of the founding of America is not nearly the fairy tale that we've been, you know, sold. It's it's one of the reasons why I'm very critical. I, I guess um, what I'm trying to convince you of is that democracy is not the fairy tale you've been sold. Uh, in the, democracy, have... American democracy, maybe, but I, I'm fairly, um, uh, you know, it, it, I would prefer American democracy to American oligarchy, um, and I would prefer sure. it to a number of other, uh, to uh, a number of other more despotic things. But I think. But, it but what do you think is going on in a vote? Like, because to me, what's going on is it's an information war, it's a narrative war, and it's a demographic war. So if the demographics of this country, like I said, if the immigration rate were the same way it was in 1964, uh, there wouldn't have been a functional election for the last 20 years. It would have been Republicans since Reagan or since, I mean, since Carter. I think there's I mean, a problem right there with regard to assuming that current trends will always continue. That's sort of like the thinking that led people to conclude in the 80s that uh, women would surpass men in race times because women hadn't been allowed to run until like the late 70s, early 80s. So their records were going faster and faster. Um, and then of course it hit a plateau. But can, to, to put this into perspective, so are you saying that demographics don't have a large impact on how elections swing? I think, this seems to be I think demographics not, have a huge impact on because how the, elections swing. The pollsters swing, but... themselves are informing democratic politicians about how they can game electoral democrat. They're not like, how do we make the best argument in a debate? They're like, okay, how many, how do we set up the environment of this country so that like, so that there's many of our guys here so that we can get to that precious 60% 
and then rule over enemies with zero input. Well, again, I wouldn't say it's quite as dire as you've point as you've painted. I will agree that there is definitely that attitude, and it especially becomes uh, available and in, in, in shitty like yeah, around. You can see like time. there's like memos yeah. that say just that basically. Well, yeah. Well, and also you know you got to think what's the kind of person who becomes a politician? It's usually a horrible person. You know, it's the same thing. What's the kind of person that becomes a cop? Oftentimes it's a bully or a sociopath or a criminal. You know, um, people, awful people are driven to seek power, which is why I think we should pull back or minimize as many positions of power as possible and spread the power as evenly as possible among as many hands as possible. And there are ways to do it. Um, I, I think the work of Yokai Bankler uh, has been um, cited a number of times. Um, Liquid Democracy uh, has had a number of proponents. And I've uh, been very intrigued with stuff like swarm technology. Where I, I don't um, see how runoffs are going to fix this problem, right? It's not because... simply runoffs. But yeah, well, I, I, I mean, would agree. Liquid democracy, as I explained, is this fancy way of saying we're going to have runoffs. And it doesn't fix the problem because... You know, most people, they don't, the Greeks imagined that democracy would be like some kind of debate. We'd all be sitting around mm -hmm. thinking these issues over and then, you know, somehow the wisdom of crowds and the laws of averages would come in and, and we get a good decision. People don't do that. They go, who's on my side? Who's playing, whose team am I on, right? Who's going to give my guys the most and who's going to take the least from them? Oh, they're 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 my team. I'm on their team, and it's all about whose team is going to come in. I mean, I'm and, not going to disagree with you that people treat politics that way, but that's also because we, you know, we reward the heights of of political power with ridiculous amounts of power and prestige and really funny hats. We incentivize that behavior by making it a competition for the chance to rule over other people, as opposed to a means of um, creating and mediating pu public policy. Which again, I think, is why what we need to do is we need to get rid of these thrones essentially. We need to get rid of these positions and instead move towards a more localized form of politics where we still interact with each other. But I think that by giving people a real say in the running of their communities um, and then letting that build out to the macro level as opposed to doing sort of a top-down approach where we get together every four years and spend, you know, millions of dollars to fight over who gets to be the nation's special guy, but also give that special guy the ability to launch a nuke like that I mean, seems insane uh, okay but like you know we agree on subsidiarity that's not mm -hmm. the issue here yeah I the mean, question is i don't i don't understand how with the size of things how they're going to get rid of the thrones other than just radically localizing things I mean, there's a number of strategies that someone could have. Um, I, you know, as an anarchist, I favor the abolition of the state, which is the military and the police. Um, if we can eliminate that institution, um, not saying we don't have any institution whatsoever, mm. um, we build you're a You're not really eliminating them, you're renaming. Well, yeah, it's the problem of, and it's not so much renaming, but it's the problem of it, nothing's perfect. So- Well, um, I, I don't know, I, I you know, mm -hmm. how, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but you need to catch criminals, right? Um, yes, though I would also say um, that- I mean, is that, like, is, that, like, is that a maybe? Maybe we don't? Well, it depends on what exactly the criminal is, what they did, and like some, a lot of the time it is more damaging to society to go after crime than to not go after crime. 
you know. Um, See, th- th- this is like, something I fundamentally of, disagree instance, with, right? Um, yeah. Well, every no, think, crime, think every crime against mm-hmm. your order of property and mm-hmm. power is an implicit claim to take over the government. And if you don't stop the crime or or, or make it legal, uh, that crime will grow into an alternative government and it will take you over. I mean, that's how all governments form, which again, you know, like these, you look into the history of Europe. I mean, these are bandits that took over the country, like just in just about every single country. That's That's where all the monarchies came from. So what group of what group of gangsters are you going to have ruling you? And we still yes, kind that's, of have it that's the same it. way. But yeah, but but you're you're correct. But if we're ruled by gangsters and there's a path mm-hmm. from being a successful gangster to being a ruler, you don't see the importance of suppressing crime. I mean, I see <laughs> the importance. So sure. what I think is more important is seeing the reasons why crime happens and dealing with it. Um, a lot of the time what you run into essentially is, is that when people are committing crimes for two reasons, one for rational reasons and one for irrational reasons. If people are committing crime for a rational reason, for instance, they need food, that guy has more food than he needs, I'm going to take that food or, or, or housing or anything like that. That is something that can be dealt with by making sure that people have what they need and that people are no longer competing with one another and we eliminate inequality as much as possible. Uh, a great example of this actually is Iceland. Iceland had one of the lowest crime rates, still does have a fairly low crime rate, but it had one of the lowest crime rates in the world until they en- uh, enacted neoliberal um, you know, economic reforms. This brought a lot of money into their country, but it also brought a lot of inequality. And last time I was there, somebody actually broke into the, um, uh, the hut uh, that I was staying at and stole some, like somebody's $6,000 camera. Their, um, oh, they they stole a $6,000, hold on, but... You did a little jump there. First, yeah. you portrayed it as if, you know, basic needs were, were driving crime. And if everyone had their basic needs met. Not just and, and In no way is a $6,000 camera a basic need. No, but you can sell uh, a $6,000 camera for $3,000 and use that $3,000 to pay your rent and pay your medical bills. And I, I think that this is, you know, this is something that, that maybe this is just going to be a disagreement. I am not for, I'm not against, I should say, I'm not against minimal social safety nets mm-hmm. but i think that there we see no evidence historically that social safety nets or or fulfillment of basic needs it's uh, not decreases crime i mean for instance it's not fulfillment of basic needs it's also there needs to not be inequality because again humans have this natural drive and it's not just humans other great apes too have a, have a natural drive for things to be fair and things to be equal and to keep up with other members of the society so if you have a, an incredibly unequal society and there are people that are locked out of reaching the heights of that society or even the middle class of that society those people are incentivized to steal and how are you going to have a radically diverse society with radically different lifestyles and radically different rules in different areas, and then have all of those differences obtain the exact same economic output. I mean, it wouldn't be the exact same, but the idea again is we're doing- Or even statistically the same, that seems odd to me. Again, what we're going to try to do is to make it as close as we possibly can in much the same way as we're trying to make leaders as accountable as we possibly can. There will still be leaders because nothing is perfect and there's no way to make everything exactly the same. 
Um, and, and in the same way, um, you know, there will be a certain level of inequality in any society. Anyone that tells you that there will never be any kind of inequality is, you know, selling you something. Well, here, here's the thing. It, to me, it seems that inequality people are most sensitive to are power and status inequality, not mm -hmm. pr pr property inequality. I mean, property uh, people will actually, intimately people tied will actually tolerated large amount of property, like consumption inequality. What they're really sensitive to too is the idea that is people really, really like getting power inequalities over their neighbor and status inequalities over their neighbor. And they really, really are sensitive to those power and status inequalities being with their, with their neighbors or with yeah. even worse with rival uh, nearby people who have different cultural values. Well, power, power and status inequalities absolutely do drive things. I think there was, um, back when Occupy Wall Street was coming out, there was a TED talk uh, that I saw where they had two monkeys. And uh, the, I forget the species of monkey, but they paid them in a, it, unequally. And so they would have the monkey perform a task. And like you'd go up, press a button, and they'd give each monkey a, uh, like a cucumber. And yeah, it wasn't a great. They introduced thing. a grape, and then that the monkey conflict. freaked yeah. out and yeah, started throwing the rocks yeah, back. I, I've heard that experiment too. Uh, the, the difficulty yeah. here, you know, and this is another one of my points here, and I, I wasn't very eloquent when I said this in the intro because I was on low sleep. Uh, democracy seems to magnify this problem more than than simply having areas of competence to rule over. The systems that I've seen work the best are when everyone has like really small areas of competence and they just do their own thing mm -hmm. and, and it, things are segregated. Uh, things get really bad when politics enters in, when you have a big pot of money and people have to divide it up and they have to contest politically with each other for who gets the biggest slice. And, and this seems to be I the mean, natural not... process of these kind of like small democratic, you know, you know I, I'd, I'd, say that's some... I'd say that's inherent to literally all human interaction in every society and in every, you know, power corrupts and, and politics. No, yeah. not necessarily. Right. Because, for instance, you know, a, a parent has an enormous amount of power over their child. Mm -hmm. uh, yet I would trust a parent's decision for their child uh, more than I would trust the democratic will of that child's classroom. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if really power. I get what you're saying there, but I don't know if really when people say power corrupts, they're talking about the relationship between a parent and a child. Like there are certainly some abusive well, parents out there. Um, you see, we've come to we've come to a magic thing, right? We've come to a piece of power that somehow doesn't corrupt. Now, why doesn't a parent's power corrupt? Um, well, I would I would say it maybe might in certain instances, and in others it wouldn't. But it does in certain instances, yeah. but most of the time it doesn't. Yeah. Although, you know, um, well, and the reason why is because the parent has skin in the game. It's because the parent's interest is so closely aligned to their child's. Yeah, and I, that I is really what people should be. On, yeah, I, I will also to yeah, also pure instinct as well. Like you, you're, you're a fairly new father just like I am. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you um, my relationship uh, with children like completely changed when my son was born. Like my biology and same. skin in the game are two things, right? So if we were trying to get leaders that had those qualities to them, biology and skin in the game probably would be a good rule of thumb for making sure communities were, were more cohesive, right? I, well, I'm not sure what you mean by biology there. Well, you said skin instinct, in the game, absolutely. Right? Uh, as in, um, what, what's the, what's the word? Um, so, if we're if we're looking for 
incentivizing and putting leaders to have the incentives to serve their communities and their people and society as a whole, that's a difficult you know, line to walk, but it's, it's a needle we could conceivably thread. Um, I mean, as far as like biology, I was talking about a, I would say a more or less universal human reaction, like in the brain. Is that what you meant by biology? Like we, we- Yeah, but, but the thing is it doesn't just stop at the parent-child relation. We know that humans have affinity groups that extend throughout their genetic relations. And now it's an open debate how far this goes. Obviously it, it will taper out at some point, right? Okay, well, where uh, are you getting that from? And are you, by genetic relations, do you mean race? Oh, I know I've raised this one type of gender. I was thinking more extended family groups. I, I guess hypothetically it could extend as far as race. We don't know that. Well, yeah, it wouldn't because race doesn't bear, it, it doesn't exist. I don't know. I, well, I don't know if we know that or not, but that's no, not what I was saying. We know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. Oh, um, really? What yeah, was your yeah. source for that? I, I had a debate with J.F. Garipay, a neo-Nazi on this. I would recommend checking out that debate, but uh, there's a, uh, and I can send you my research from it. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that everyone on this planet right now, it, we are all the direct descendants of like Confucius, like every single one of us. Um, as we go back in, you know, lines, each person has two parents and the further generations you go back, the more overlap there is. Go back 20 generations, you know, you've got um, over a million That itself, ancestors. I mean, that is very nice, but that is, does not directly bear on the open I mean, question that it, I have no opinion on and maybe yeah. JF does, but. If we could just. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's <laughs> not what it be. I, I have no opinion on that. I yeah, don't, I, I that does not answer sure. the question. Yeah, the, I the would thing say is that here humans, is that we have, mm -hmm. The thing is here is we've established some patterns in how humans keep their leaders aligned. And to me, these patterns don't really have anything to do with democracy. I mean, it's fine if you want to use democracy, but the last thing you want to do is have a bunch of people go into a room and have a big debate democratically over how to split up a bunch of money. If you well, ever do that, or if you're ever in a situation where that's done, and I have been in a situation where that's done, it is absolute chaos. Well, yeah, but I, again, I don't see how that would be solved by autocracy or uh, any other form of government that we might have. It's because what, there's no what, debate. Say what? Because there's no debate. Well, that's only yeah, but that's only if you want the okay, one person whose job you, it is to do it, who has the right. You know, this it, is a little bit like personal, but I'm going to go here anyway, mm -hmm. right? So, so in in. You know, when when my family a long time ago had property that was passed down, and one piece of property went directly to to one of of the four cousins, right? Mm -hmm. Another piece of property was divided up equally. It was one property was divided up equally, with each person having a separate share. Uh, that divided custody of the property. You know, the one that got sold off and went direct, and, and one that went directly to one person. No one ever thought about that again. That was fine. That was just how the way things were. Uh, the one that was divided up equally almost tore the family apart on several occasions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is, and I think this is a very common human reality. If you give people a big political disagreement over how wealth is divided up and, and they win by forming political coalitions against each other, they will form political coalitions against each other and they will invent all sorts of lies about each other to screw each other over. Sure, but that happens in literally every society and in literally every form of government. That's not something that is specific. No, it, it, this is this is not true. If you, if there is a ruler who just goes like, "You get this, you get that," and that's the end of the conversation. And, I mean, you can have that, but then again, you've got a huge problem there in that you have only one person making that decision, and maybe yeah, that, that, is the, that is a problem. Yeah. And, oh, absolutely, absolutely no lie there. That's the problem. 
right? But but it's but it's a different problem, and these two problems have to be held. You know, this is, and I'm getting this from Aristotle and also the Founding Fathers. These two problems have to be held in tandem with each other. Democracy, you're not going to replace a king by dividing mm -hmm. property up by a vote and have that result in anything other than massive civil war. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the monarchies across Europe fell as a direct result of civil war anyway. So again, I, I don't see how that's a problem. Uh, there may or may not be a civil war that people may or may not come into conflict, but that's not a problem that is, that, that again is a problem that is endemic to the human condition. And you would have to show that like democracies cause more civil wars than monarchies would. Uh, and that's simply not the case. Well, like, I mean, I mean, I, I know that this is, <laughs> this is something that probably I might, be curious if the 20th century, the century of democracy, wasn't more violent than the 18th century, the century, or the or the 17th century. Probably yeah, not the, for the 18th century. Um, I mean, in particular, like the the, tw the early 20th century. You know, we've got World War One, World War Two. We've got the atomic bomb, um, but also we have an exploding population and exploding uh, technology. Um, if you want to look at like one of the most peaceful periods in Europe, it was probably after the fall of the Roman Empire, because it was simply just, it, it was too difficult to raise large armies to go and fight each other. I, I think once. you mean, well, I think you probably mean 1080 to 1380 or 1480. Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, probably I, not right after the Roman Empire because that was incredibly violent. Well, yeah, not immediately uh, yeah. after the fall, but uh, okay, you but, know, give, you it know. A, give it a few years from there. And, um, and here, here's a good thing because what, what, what characterized 1000 to 1400? You had small communities, Mm -hmm. almost all of which were authoritarian, but the rulers lived very, very close to their subjects. They were very, very closely culturally related. They had a common set of religious norms to guide the decision-making process. And it was very, very clear who owned the power and who had the responsibility for that power. I mean, uh, I, 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 I would say that's all the things that on is, my list and it was accomplished yeah. without democracy, right? Yeah, and this is, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't doubt that it was accomplished without democracy because, again, this was you know early feudalism. But also, I don't think that's the reason for the relative peace. As I stated before, the the reason was was that the Roman dinar was worthless. You could no longer pay large uh, armies uh, to field and, and feed them, and they just weren't able to go and make war on each other like they had previously during the Roman Empire. Um, so, I mean, what I would say is, let's say, let's go down this, this route. You have society uh, that is functioning a little bit better because the, the rulers are more connected to their people. I definitely think that is something that we need to look at. But also- and that's, the, that's the heart of the red versus blue conflict that's turning our country to the heart right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would agree. I would say that our red ruling America does class not on both sides blue is- America. And yeah. you wouldn't want to either if, if they got 53% or however much Joe Biden got, you would not be saying that they have the right to at that level. Either. I mean, I, I lived in New York City for 10 years and solidly blue state. I had no problems. Um, I don't know, even I, know a point you're making. Aren't you well, on the left? Me, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of my own thing. I, I tend to agree a little bit more with the left than the right these days. But okay. it's also like, have you seen the right? <laughs> Um, you've got Trump. Well, I'm on got the QAnon. right, so yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, the, okay, my, my, but mm -hmm. I guess I'm saying is 
the fundamental problem is not factual. And this is a lie that our leaders tell us. They tell us that the fundamental problem is informational and factual because they want to be able to control what is a fact and what is information. They want to justify their rulership over the information apparatuses of society. Yeah, so they're, they're going to say that the problem, they're going to say that the problem is false facts. That's not the problem. The problem is different values. It's different values, not different facts. It's, it's different values in the Jonathan Haidt sense, in, in the sense of core moral axioms, not in terms of, you know, I, I think that this is happening versus I think that's happening. I don't know. See, I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with you on that. I think the problem is sectarianism, and you're totally right. People are breaking up into their, you know, tribal groups and their identities, and it's all about my team. You know, uh, there was a debate, uh, an informal debate I did um, on D Dylan Burns' channel, and there was a proud boy on there who was saying basically like crowing about um, that one woman uh, getting on the Supreme Court and how what he wanted to see was, you know, me, 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 my politics. He wanted to see everything reflected that he had in, in the society. It was a frankly very disgusting and vapid way of approaching politics and one of the things that i'm know, not so I sure i know, even know who that is to be, oh, to be yeah. quite honest <laughs> uh, he's he's just a streamer it's not a, it's not a okay. big thing okay, um cool. you know the, the the point is is that um you know what politics is what we do so we don't have to fight you know um and there. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, there are times that it goes. And in fact, that was one of the things that somebody had said, essentially, which was politics is war in this. And I was like, no, no, war is politics continued by other means. Um, yeah, I mean, both are true. Yeah. So I will. Yeah. In, in, a, in, a, in a certain sense. But my point being is, is that what we need to be doing when we have this massive population is we need to find the best way to make sure that people feel represented, that they feel that they are, that they are being listened to, that they have some control over their life and that they have some skin in the game. And, you know, one of the big things that was really effective for me as a manager, and this was again, on a small level mm -hmm. was when I gave people in my office control over the work they were doing control over their workspace. When I let them have a, a small part of skin in the game of what we were doing. And when we did that, they excelled. Again, because they felt free, because they were freer yeah. than they would have been in other situations. Yeah, I think but a let's, lot let's, of the time, let's say you're a manager and you've got like six groups, right? Yeah. Uh, by democracy, do you mean we're going to let each of these six groups you know, have more autonomy and then give them stock options? Or, um, but because democracy, the democracy I'm against is let's have all these six groups come into a big conference room and, mm -hmm. and vote over who gets the bonuses this month. I mean, that's I would the democracy say, doesn't yeah. work. Like, I, I, giving everyone more mm -hmm. autonomy is great, but to me, that's not. I mean, that's just, that's not really democracy. That's subsidiarity. I mean, you we can call it whatever we want. I would say, you know, autonomy uh, in the sense of like, um, like what I would say is is that groups should have obviously as much control over th matters that directly affect them, and politics and politics really shouldn't come into. Uh, play until, of course, you've got a conflict and we have to mediate that kind of conflict. And there's a lot of ways that we can do that, that level of mediation. Um, but again, I think that what we need to do is we need to build our democratic system from the bottom up, not the top down. Uh, I also think it's a very bad idea to drop like a huge amount of praise and power on our leaders. I, I think that being a leader should be like being, you know, the, the head of the, your city's sanitation department. You go, you do your thing, you, you wear a suit, you don't get much more money than anybody else, and you're not a big, important person. You are just an administrator. 
Now, obviously, part of that we can't control because a lot of power happens when you get into a leadership yeah, position. That's, that's and the problem. Do that. But we can mitigate it, which is the, which the danger is the of allowing them to be just administrators is the fact that they get to wield power with, without being recognized as wielders of power. Uh, for oh, that's instance, a, oh, hold on, let me give me this example. For, for instance, do you know how much power is, is wielded by international banks that are ostensibly part of governments and are essentially making decisions for us? I mean, I to, was you, with Occupy Wall Street, so yes, yes, yeah, I know. Yeah, if you talk to these guys, they justify their power by saying that they're stewards of the government. They're experts that are being put in place over these institutions mm -hmm. And they're just doing a job. You know, they're just like the local sanitation guy, just doing a job. Uh, and, and that's bullshit. And they're essentially our kings. They're essentially making decisions. And, and I include NGOs in addition to bankers in this. The people from the World Economic Forum are essentially acting like kings. They're writing out policy that's being imposed on us. And, and really the, the things that are being proposed by them aren't even being debated in democracy. They're not even in the narrative. Yeah, uh, and, I'm, and, I'm not and, gonna and disagree with you on that. Talk but again, to them and they're just like, well, mm -hmm. I'm just a guy with a job, you know? And, and so I really wish, my wish is that for people who are wielding power to admit that they have power. And what the problem with democracy I have is that it obscures that relationship. I mean, again, it, it can in certain instances, um, but also I don't think that that's necessarily a endemic feature of democracy. It's more a feature of whichever particular democratic system you put into place. Now, for instance, what I would say is with the, the term of, of like international bankers, Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, you know, places of huge amounts of wealth and economic power, I definitely think that needs to be broken up as much as possible. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the, the, it's one of the big problems, in my opinion, with capitalism, like as a system, because what we have is we have an economy that is driven by speculative investment for profit. And when the profits don't come back in a larger amount, the economy crashes and they retreat to their bunkers and gated communities and wait it out for, for a better day while, you know, people lose their jobs and suicides happen. But what I'll, I'll point out is take a look at, for instance, Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam has a lot of problems. It's definitely not my ideal country, but it, look at what happened with their response to COVID. This is one of the few economies in the world where profits are not in command. And as a result, they were able to respond to COVID in a sane way with a fraction of our resources. They've had maybe 1,500 cases of COVID in the whole country, a total of 35 deaths. Uh, last I, 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 I remember them, they like immediately shut down their immigration rate, right? Well, they shut down the country. I don't know about immigration necessarily because people can still. Come and they had a closed the immigration policy to begin with. Yeah. I can't. I mean, and I, and I remember them basically just shutting it, right? I mean, again, I think it was more about travel than immigration necessarily. Uh, I have a good friend who lives in oh, Vietnam. I don't see how you immigrate without travel, yeah. but. <laughs> yeah, but uh, like. <laughs> Let me ask you something, because you, you have had this immigration issue come up, and it's something that I yes. take a lot of issue with because, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm from a family of immigrants. You know, my well, it's grandmother, never been, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's the American thing. My, my great grandmother, you know, uh, I think she had um, my grandma, my grandmother in a field in like Eastern Europe. Uh, and like my, my you know, father, not my grandfather, was born in a farm in Eastern Europe. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was you know, with I, the Carpathian Mountains. I'm part of a very new set of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the pertinent immigration point to this set of the debate is it's very obvious to me the immigration rights are being used to essentially gain democracy. 
Uh, where and how? Because if you bring more immigrants in, immigrants have predictable voting patterns. I mean, it would and depend. So a lot of immigrants secure... are very conservative. So what, are the Republicans doing it? I've never, what, what immigration, what large immigrant group votes more Republican than Democrat in this country? Um, Any? Uh, there's quite a few, the if Cubans, I remember. That's one it, of the right? things. Well, not just the Cubans. Um, there, and... There's, um, what was it? I'm trying to remember. remember a hard there, time there was a group of having a hard time recalling it because it's so rare. No, it's Almost just I had, didn't prepare for this because I didn't know we were going to be having a debate on immigration. Yeah, okay. I was, what I will say is, I'm is sorry. That, if we can just put it back to um, actual sure. democracy, and it, honestly, if we we could wrap it up so we can get to the questions, Brenton, if you kind of wanted yeah. to make your closing point in the distributus, you can kind of end it off since um, Brenton started. Sure. Uh, so what I would say is this, um, and I'll, I'll sort of try to tie this in to, to the whole issue of immigration. I don't see any logical reason to stop the free movement of peaceful people. Um, and I would say if people want to come here and be a part of our society, by all means, let them. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, could this be uh, used by politicians to swing the vote? Absolutely. But also, that's another reason why we need to reform our economic system. We've seen, uh, you know, the essentially like they did that with the Irish in, in New York. Those they did. Is this, this has been, Game of Thrones. I mean, I don't know why this is under contestment. We can see this happening historically in the 19th century. I mean, the, right. the issue is not I mean, so much is, that it doesn't, that, that what you're describing, right? is, yeah. The, the I mean, issue is, is not, not so much. I don't even know why what I'm saying is controversial, frankly. I mean, it, it's controversial because it kind of sounds like you want to keep the nation for like just one race and people. And a lot of people have a big problem with that. I would say that's probably I, what's I, I want, well, I'll say this. What I, want, what I want the nation to do is I want the nation to grow more from birth rate than it does from immigration. I mean that that I, will I, I, never that, happen in a in a that will never happen in a first world country. Well, what and, you, 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 what happens? Are you kidding me? It happens in any any closed. You mean any country that has an open immigration rate? No, I'm I'm talking about birth birth in a as people get more money and as people's living conditions improve, birth yeah. rates drop. All of the first world countries. Except birth in Israel, rates drop. yeah. Is yeah, there? I'm sorry. Is there a way that this? pertains to democracy it, 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 it i mean it's only tertiary tertiarily so we, we should probably talk about that but let, let me just I finish think it's my a statement really interesting and, topic i think yeah. we should have another debate on that uh, absolutely yeah because my, immigration my, my, is... my point is not about race it's about skin in the game and the problem is if, if the demographic changes you know it, it, so much from immigration then in the immigration is the policy of democratic politicians you have essentially a feedback loop i mean assuming that's what happens necessarily but again when people are yeah, things are more so complicated than that um that was it my, it was my debate with t jump um where he pointed out that all of these recent a african immigrants were voting republican and were out of step with uh the black community in the united states and i pointed out that, that was because they were immigrants they were selected for they were wealthy um people mm. so you know uh, again it's simplistic so, so i could look at because some statistics on african immigrants and they have yeah recent vote. african immigrants yeah you would you would african find immigrants them, vote republican yeah well, well according to t jumps data they did that was uh, a point that i responded to but anyway my point being and it was i'll, I'll look into country, that yeah but my point being is is that even if we do this i i mean again 
whatever a society does, that's the consequence of people within that society, like having actual um, uh, power. And you don't have skin in the game if you don't have actual power. And having a minority rule over you specifically removes skin from the game. So I think what we really need to see is we need to see, again, the heights of power that isolate leaders and put them and put them out of the reach of the people and literally damage their brains. I mean, there, there's plenty of studies showing that uh, power actually has the same effect on the brain as like a traumatic brain injury. Um, that like, um, if we get rid of these huge heights of power, we bring uh, uh, politics more down to the local level and we grow our politics from the ground up, we're going to live in a more happy, peaceful and prosperous society than we otherwise would. And I, you know, until we find a better way of managing all of these different people's voices and needs and desires than democracy, I think that, you know, we need to go with democracy. And if we want to heal the, the rift in this country, what we need to do is stop making our politics about ruling over someone else. Well, it seems like everything here hinges on localization, not democracy. And I, that's where I'm kind I, of I might argue because... that they're. I might argue that they're close to one and the same. People understand with localization, that's like, not... you, like you you said at the beginning of the debate, um, that like a person doesn't have like their vote doesn't mean anything. And you're right in the sense of like the a national election. It's such a small. You're turning on a ceiling fan and trying to command a hurricane, but. Yeah. Uh, that's not the only way or the only people that people vote for. People are voting in uh, active in their communities. And the smaller you go, the more powerful that vote is. And, you know, f- very famously, my uh, uh, co-host on Insurrection with Brenton Lengel, uh, the Honorable George Martinez, official U.S. Amb- ambassador of hip hop, famously said, you know, uh, and echoed the statement, all politics is local. So I, I think that. Uh, OK, he- but but there's been a move away from local politics in, in the last century and has been driven by I mean, the, the really anti-local party has been the party that you voiced support for at the beginning I, of this debate, the Democratic wait, Party. Wait, I didn't, I don't, I do not support the Democratic Party. I hate the Republican Party slightly okay. more than I hate, I hate the Republican Party slightly more than I hate the Democratic Party. But uh, yeah, no, they're both a group of gangsters and uh, I want them all thrown out windows. <laughs> I, I don't see how First you're going to get four localism, windows, Carissa. <laughs> unless there's a, a much more stable population. I mean, localism, the, the, the massive immigration rates disrupt local communities because people keep on moving around all the time. I mean, people don't like change, but change is inevitable. I mean, you, there are ways to mitigate that. But again, that's probably another conversation that we could have. Well, I mean, it seems like it's out and, of, the and this is, of this debate. If, I, if, if, if a family moves every two years, there's not going to be a local community. I mean, I, you know, why would a family move every two years? Moving is incredible. Jobs expensive. change every two years. Yeah. So it's very not hypothetical for, for people in my situation here. Yeah. I, and I'm sorry to hear that. And I did go through a period where I was moving quite a bit as a result of economic factors. And I think it's, that's another reason why we need to move beyond a system that is as brutal uh, to people as capitalism, as like America. You don't see the connection America. between the economy that constantly demands people move and the economy that brings in mass levels of immigration. To me, they're just intimately connected. I mean, they are intimately connected in the sense that free flow of global capital will insist a free moving workforce. Yeah. But, you know, again, I and think- And you want to pour mm-hmm. gasoline on this fire? Uh, no, I want to destroy capitalism. <laughs> but, but giving like, it what it wants. That's another debate. <laughs> 
That is, if, if um, distributist, if you want to kind of make your closing statement when it comes to the um, um, democracy, that would be absolutely wonderful. Okay, I mean, I, I don't know. I think we agree on a lot. The, the problem is I, I, I just don't see really where the democracy question enters into this. Most of the stuff that we're talking about is questions about distributing power and property to a more local level. It's not about... It's not about whether a given leader needs to necessarily be elected or appointed, uh, which is, you know, in the strictest sense, what democracy actually means. Uh, there are many instances where appointed leaders are more appropriate. And I, especially if that appointed leader is ruling over people that are very much like him and have the same values. And, you know, I, I don't really, and again, I'll say this one more time, I don't really see democracy as a negative, but more or less as a red herring and, and an obscurant to the problems that are actually going on, which have much more to do with the question of how we manage power and property. And the fact that neither of those two things are really destroyable in any real sense. Gotcha. Uh, can, can I answer that? Am I allowed to answer that or am I not? Yeah, if you I don't care. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I, I wanted to answer that in, in the sense that democracy is, uh, in my view, one of the three ways that we handle these kinds of issues, because really what it all comes down to is public policy. How do we deal with property? How do we relate with our, our fellow man? And it seems to me that these uh, ways of doing it within our society are, there's multiple ways of wielding power and of making policy happen. One is cultural, uh, one is political in the sense of democracy, and one is economic. Um, these three come together and that, and it's through the conversation between the three of them that we come to overall public policy. So it's a way of selecting leaders, uh, and also a way of selecting rules and policies, as you pointed out, like with regard to um, like high level banking people. And you're right, they're as much nobles and, and kings as presidents as, and anything else. Um, so I, again, I think that this debate is structured to one third of that triangle, but I think all three points in that triangle need to essentially be reformed in order to promote a, the most peaceful, sane and prosperous society that we can. Um, and I think that the two easiest and quickest ones to attack are economic and political. Culture is a little more nebulous, so it's a little harder to, to make direct change to. Gotcha. Um... If both of you are okay with it, we can move into the questions. I'm fine. I'm great, yeah. All right, wonderful. The first question um, is from Layman. He says, the child won the debate. <laughs> <laughs> Never debate with children or animals, I agree. <laughs> I think he, we're already grooming him to be a debater someday. <laughs> uh, next question is from Neon Noir. They say... Brenton, can you debate Ryan Dawson? Ryan, no, because he's a Nazi. Um, yeah, Ryan Dawson is a Nazi and a Holocaust denier. I have no reason to talk to him, and I never intend to. Um, I thought you said JF was a Nazi and you debated him. I mean, yeah, he is, but he's the one that uh, challenged me. I don't see a, uh, a reason to, I mean, if, if Ryan's going to challenge me, maybe, but yeah, I'm not just going to go out of my way for that. Gotcha. All right, next one is from Black Omega. He says, hey, Brenton, how would we address a, a social issues that target minority groups in a purely democratic anarchist society? 
Could you say that again one more time? Um, how would we address social issues that target minority groups in a purely democratic anarchist society? So we actually have a, a good uh, precedent on this, which is Occupy Wall Street. And one of the ways that minorities uh, made their power known was through um, both the consensus process and through um, uh, direct action. So when it comes, the way anarchists work out policy is we have a GA and the GA involves everyone within a particular community coming together to talk about what we should do as far as public policy, how we should handle, handle problems. Um, people will, certain decisions require a simple majority, some require a double majority, some require, um, you know, a full consensus. Um, and it, it is adapted to the particular community. So if a minority wants their voices known and represented, they have their chance to come in and speak at the GA. They have the ability to block motions when we're going for full consensus, which then prompts us to want to deal with them and to work through it. Uh, I'd say the very how, big how difference- big is the GA? I mean, the GA at Occupy, um, uh, the one that uh, ratified our uh, declaration of the occupation was uh, 700 to 1,000 people, hmm. I think. Um, it's it, it's pretty impressive, like, what can be accomplished with these GAs, like, when they are working. There's a lot of problems, but, you know, there's problems in any democratic position uh, or, or really any decision-making process, period. Gotcha. Well, you said that that's more or less the limit for consensus decision making no definitely not um, especially not now that we have um technology on our side like uh, you know the the ga a, a physical ga is kind of limited by how many people can fit in the room and can be heard um but like now that we've got the internet now that we've got swarm technology and there's a number of other uh, really interesting um uh, technological things that we can use um uh, the ability of a general assembly actually extends far beyond uh meat space which is cool gotcha i would, I would oh, consider dissent to be the bigger problem the what I was saying, I, I was thinking more of dissent as the more of the problem than communication limitations. Uh, dissent, we can get into that. I, let's answer some more questions if we got sure, time. Sure. You and I will yeah, I didn't that. want to interrupt the question flow. Go no, ahead. you're good. There's actually only um, one more question. I'll have to refresh to see if any others came in. Uh, the next one is Con the Stoner Lynn, and they say, it seems to me the problem is democracy is the will of the people, not in fact... Um, not fact of the matter. I'm sorry, let me restart. It seems to me the problem is democracy is a will of the people, not fact of the matter. And it seems the academic community is an excellent example of fact-based consensus working well. What are your thoughts? I guess that's for Dave first. Do you want to Yeah, respond? well, I mean, I guess there's sort of two things here. First of all, the academic community does not work on democracy. I, I know this as so someone who spent many years in, in the academy. Uh, the consensus is driven by an established set of evidence in the case of hard sciences. And in the case of soft sciences, insofar as I've really interacted with that, it's driven by political power. And that political power is certainly not equally distributed. And if you think it is, maybe you need to spend more time in the academy. Um, so I don't really know what 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 that goes to? I guess the question I wanted to get to, though, maybe I could just turn this around and ask Brenton a question here. Uh, the one thing I kind of brought up, and I know I was really scattershot in my introduction, 
but mm-hmm. isn't it the case and this is, does bear out with numerous sort of psychological i mean whatever you make with psychological research but we can observe this you know uh we can observe the fact that you can re-narrative you can take similar policies we have a different narrative around them and get to massively different poll results if everything goes through a democratic system it seems that it would best ultimate power and to the class of people that create the narrative so you're talking and essentially so, about manufacturing consent well it seems like that naturally occurs and that's nat- nat- naturally comes about right because what you're saying is you know like i said the medicare for all is a good example of this right Uh, Well, the Medicare for all, I mean, that seems to be less of a problem of information and more of a problem of people not being entirely rational. Like, um, I would say I've gone through a number of different, um, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, Health plans, including some like top tier hoity toity CBS employee health plans that like did ridiculous stuff like uh, cover 20 acupuncture treatments a year. And those health plans were great and very inexpensive compared to most of them. But I've also been in situations when I've been on Medicaid uh, and I'll tell you, Medicaid beat it hands down. Um, But if you had had somebody who had never experienced something like that, and, you know, Medicaid is not known as great insurance in the world. It's not as good as Medicare and it's not nearly as good as, you know, single payer that people have up in, in, in Europe uh, and Canada. Um, but what happened was, was that they phrased the question in a way of, we will take something from you. Uh, okay, and people but- have, there's a severe emotional reaction that people have with regard to the fear of loss. Now- um, which. <laughs> I guess I I, I want to we're we're not addressing the question I I kind of contest that factually because that's not been my experience dealing with a variety of different health plans certainly mm-hmm. uh, definitely I've had the opposite experience but that's not the point the point is that regardless of what your opinions are on this particular issue that wasn't the point the point was that we can take an issue we can rephrase it in order to basically point out certain things so you to people like in a narrative and then people will vote for that policy with with the amount of information that you typically get in one of these big you know in these big groups of 900 people uh you can essentially people respond to narratives not to facts and so unless they're spending their lives pouring over dusty books of statistics uh the people who decide how to narrativize those facts are going to be the ones that to a large degree set the agenda I mean, I'm not going to disagree that storytellers are incredibly powerful being a storyteller myself. Yeah. I I mean, I think that uh, a lot of us uh, have been sold a false bill of goods when we've been told we're simply entertainers uh, because that's not our our role within society and hasn't been in most uh, things except for capitalism. Um, But what I'll also say is, is that there's lots of different storytellers and there's lots of people there. There are good wizards to combat the evil wizards. So yes, people can be manipulated, but also not everyone is malicious. And um, there are ways in which we can combat misinformation and manipulation of people. And also I, I feel like people can be manipulated at any level and in any system. And the larger the group of people that are being manipulated, the less likely they're going to be manipulated in large enough numbers. Whereas when, if you only have to manipulate 10 uh, nobles or one king, it's, that's much easier than manipulating 900 people. But that's the opposite of what the user was just saying with science, right? I mean, science essentially has this nobility of 
uber experts that kind of frames the consensus. Yeah. Uh, we consider them better decision makers than say the tens of thousands of undergrads that are majoring in that topic. Well, yeah, well, they're, they're, they're the class of Brahmins. It's the same thing as like the okay, freaking, but, um, uh, the, the freaking uh, Spanish inquisition, you know, but doesn't that go against the, the previous statement? I mean, to, to me, if you're, if you're trying to draw consensus, you, you want to get mm -hmm. people who, who really studied the facts and, and who, who, essentially can talk to each other. So you want a very small number of people to form a consensus, like I mean, in the academic community. People can be, so the, the issue part of it is overcoming Dunbar's number with, we can only recognize 150 or so individuals uh, as actual people. And then everybody else gets grouped into an abstract, but there are ways and strategies in which we can overcome that. We can also know that that's just our monkey brains getting, uh, getting confused by uh, their limitations. So well, I, 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 I just, I'm just gonna flatly disagree with you here. The fact mm -hmm. that, you know, 10 uber experts in, in string theory would, would make a better decision about what the physics consensus is. Oh, than I see what you're, I'm sorry. I, I misunderstood not, what you were talking about. I thought you were talking, so you're, you're okay. I mean, I, it's I, sort of both I, and, right? Like, you know, you know, but, but the thing is, is that the, 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 the reason why people conglomerate into elites to make decisions is informational. It's the fact that it requires specialization and focus uh, yeah, and also investment, and that's not something that people who are voting can really exhibit. I mean, they can, uh, you know, and in fact, there's there's other strategies. Um, one of the interesting liquid democracy strategies, besides simple runoffs, um, that's been experimented with in certain instances, is like your ability to give your vote to someone else. So there, everybody's voting on, say, um, something that has to do with string theory. I don't know anything about string theory, but my brother is, uh, you know, an engineer uh, that works with it. Like, I can give my vote to my brother. And then my yeah, brother okay, can but, but hold, on, hold on a second mm -hmm. here. Let's, let's take a step back. Let's say that the nine experts in string theory have one opinion, and the 10th one is like a complete heretic. And he has like this wacky idea. But the 10th guy spends all his time just campaigning. Like he just, mm -hmm. he has, he has connections in the storyteller community. And he's a really good storyteller. And so yeah. because he tells a good story, all of the people who have no idea what string theory is, they all give their vote to him. So then does he just get to decide over the other well, it's, again, it's, I mean, that's the problem of propaganda and the fact that, you know, decisions are made, you know, when you're working within an institutional framework, we love to, to think that it's always the best idea that wins and that, you know, we've got the, the, the free market of ideas. But the fact of the matter is, is that organizing is much more complicated and complex than that. Um, in the event that there was a problem like that, uh, I would hope that the ten, uh, that the nine other people can come together and find a way to stop that problem. But again, it's like I said in my opening statement. Like, part of this is that y yes, by giving people power, actual power, you increase the chance that they will do something wrong or evil. But there's no other alternative because it's more likely that when once you've concentrated power in fewer and fewer hands, those people will do something wrong or evil. And those people who have the power in fewer and fewer hands tend to do more damage in the long run. A great example would be uh, the Soviet scientist Lysenko. 
Um, a lot of people talk about like the famines in China and Russia yes. uh, as if they were caused by uh, by the collectivization. They were not directly caused by the collectivization. There was this one scientist, Lysenko, who had anti-Darwinist views and believed really weird stuff like plants are comrades. So you can plant plants of the same species close together and they'll just work together and one plant will choose to die to help the other plant. And it wound up, he basically promised these, this huge um, crop yield. And but that's because Marxist material analysis rejected Darwinism at an yeah. early stage of communism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, because but, it but, emphasized competition. Yeah, uh, but, exactly. But I, I guess he was saying things that were convenient to those in power and they held him up and gave him a bunch of power in much the same way Steven Pinker says things that are convenient to those in power and he gets raised up. Um, but the thing is, is that what wound up happening was, was that the Soviets then he, his, his theories failed. The Soviets lied about it. The Chinese believed those lies. The Chinese put the, and you know, you have the, the famine for, with regard to the great leap forward. It was because of an information problem. Um, and there, there were issues with like the, the Soviet state's structure didn't let enough in. But the, the point being is, is that these the problems that you're citing are worse when power is concentrated as opposed to when power is diffused. We're not arguing over whether power is concentrated over whether power is diffused. We're arguing over what keeps leaders accountable. And, and I mean, that's where, yeah. that's where I kind of, you know, I think that leaders need to be kept accountable on the basis of the principles that I talked about previously. The fact that the leaders have to have a, a common set of morals and a common set of, of, uh, of, 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 cultural norms and they also have to have the interests of the other people at heart right i mean that's so all well and good if people are static that... like people people change when someone has a certain set of morals and then gets raised to another position in society their morals will change with that because they'll have new information much the same way that I, if i got put in prison I would change and my morals would change as a result of being surrounded by prisoners. Well, like if morals humans... can change on the circumstances, then good luck holding anyone to account to a moral standard. Well, I my mean... answer to that, right? You'd be like, oh, well, my morals change now. And, you know, in order to even have an understanding of accountability, we have to acknowledge some constant moral framework for recognizing bad behavior, bad actions, and bad aims for ends for the collective. If we don't have that, you don't have political unity. I would inherently disagree with that in the sense that what we've got here is a fallacious appeal to consequence. Um, I, you know, man, I don't man see makes that. morals. Man makes morals. Morals don't make man. Existence precedes essence. Um, now that said, that doesn't. I, I, just, mean I literally don't see how that logically follows. What the people are. What I'm saying, if you don't have a moral basis for judging leaders, good or bad, you're not going to have a political unit. I mean, you have a more people have a moral basis. It's just not a set or a moral basis. It, it's going to change with society. Like uh, I think we're a, talking about different things here. We might be. Hey, what, can I put a question to Brenton? Perhaps if there's no more questions from the chat. Yeah, I muted oh. myself. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, so, so this was so, sort of something that occurred to me. So, so you know, presumably Joe Biden's going to be president, right? Yeah. So there are areas of this country where like virtually nobody voted for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Now, if Joe Biden were king and one of these areas wanted to not be ruled by him, uh, I think that would be 
most people, including anarchists, would would be very understanding of attempts to seg- uh, secede or to separate powers from that body. Sure. However, those same people, you know, because Joe Biden is president now, and, and even in this you know Republican town where no one voted for Joe Biden, all of a sudden now the fact that there was an election and no one in this area voted for him. Uh, now this can be used as as a means of of to justify Joe Biden's ruling over this area, where he functionally has no moral support among the people who live there. Uh, how how is that not just and to me that just seems like imperialism with more steps involved. <laughs> I, I'd rather have it just called. You know, I'd rather have it just be called imperialism at that stage. I mean, what I would say is, first off, uh, I'm not a fan of even having a president. I don't think it's an office that needs to be filled. I think we'd do fine if we eliminated the office entirely. Or like we could elect a special guy every few years. Just don't give him any real power. Um, But that said, I think there's a couple of issues here because again you know donald trump was elected and i lived in new york and almost no one in new york voted for donald trump or supported donald trump um Mm -hmm. and you know we were pretty pissed about that but also it was just four years we had to put up with it now if donald trump had been dictator for life you have a much higher chance that people are going to risk insurrection against that uh, leader than if the leader is going to simply be in for four to eight years. People yeah, but, you, but your problem with Donald Trump was not that was not the person Donald Trump. The problem he had with Donald Trump was that he was the right American candidate. And, no, and my problem. I know you I, can't I, hold I, no, on, no. Finish <laughs> this. Uh, uh, the, 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 well, I, good. No, mark dude, dude. my words. Mark my words. The left was like, it's just Bush. It's not Republicans generally. Believe me, in the next four years, your guys are going to be complaining about how the next red state candidate is the real Hitler this time. You I mean, I'm, really I'm sure there are people who are going to do that. I'm just not one of them. Trump was uh, Hitler in 2016. Yeah. Every four years we get this, and it's so consistent. Yeah. But the thing well, is, it's, it's, you could it's Imagine scenarios where blue America could be permanently demographically overwhelmed and there might not be any end to red American rule. I mean, which is how a lot of communities say in blue states literally have to function. What I would say is, I think that first off, um, I think it's more likely, uh, especially if we don't get rid of something like the Electoral College, that red America is going to be completely overwhelmed. Um, they came fairly close to losing Texas in this like they didn't they they still kept it if Texas goes and nothing else changes mathematically it will be impossible to to elect a Republican president so so, so what you have is you have a sizable regional cultural minority that does not want to be ruled by you Mm -hmm. yeah I mean and how does democracy fix this I guess I mean the idea would be with democracy I, I Again, are you are you asking me to describe the process in a liberal democracy, or are you asking me to describe like an ideal anarchist democratic process? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess my problem is that I'm not so sure liberal democracy has a solution for this. If uh, Joe Biden mm-hmm. were king, basically, or if Blue America was king, Red America would be recognized at that state as a vassal property, and as such. Although, although the power relationship might be more stark, at least it would be more obvious and more easy to keep in account. My great fear is that blue America is going to rule red America and then use the mo-democracy argument to essentially hide the fact that they're basically making pernicious and uh, 
pernicious decisions against the interests of the areas they're ruling over, and then claiming that they had a hand in electing them when in really they were just a minority that was shouted over. I mean, I would say the with regard to blue America ruling red America, um, I think that red America still has their own local leaders and their own, uh, you know, like blue America is not going to come in and take over Kentucky anytime soon. You know, um, Um, has local power been eroding for last 60 years? I mean, it may, it may have been eroding and I think we should probably rebuild it. Um, you know, again, I don't like the centralization of power in the executive branch, and I don't like the centralization of power in the federal government, period. Like, um, there's certain times that I prefer it to certain regional powers because of what I feel is often small-minded policies. But again, I think that it's people's autonomy is more important. Um, in the long run. And I also think that people need to feel represented by their, go- by their government, whether they're, in pa- whether they're the ones in power or not. I don't think getting to a point where it's the red tribe versus the blue tribe, and we fight over who gets the crown, who gets to lord it over somebody for another four to eight years, I think that's a terrible game. And I think we should stop playing it. And I think it's ultimately destructive. And if we keep playing it, it's going to destroy the nation. Um, I've seen a tendency for democratic systems to devolve into coteries that wield power over each other just like this. I mean, they may, but also, again, you, you have the same problem in just about every other uh, you know, system. There were huge um, power games going on in, um, you know, in, in monarchies. It's like fascism is literally, like actual fascism is one of the most backbitey and uh, internally um, feuding systems that you can ever find. I mean, fa- fascism is essentially monarchy crossbred with democracy. Right? This is it's, it's it's a weird thing, but but if you look to say a monarchy in that stable period you were talking about during the Renaissance, sort of the Hiller Balakian time of distributism, right? And if you read the Servile State, I'd have to look back at that. I'm not exactly sure if it's quite the Renaissance because the Renaissance was a, a okay. Well, the, the Renaissance was a period where money began to have a lot more value, and so sure. Well, I mean, this is obviously the war machine started to ramp up. Yeah. Uh, the point is, is that the kings would fight, but this, the you know, the people on the ground would never feel this. Uh, the 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 there would be subterfusion politics at court, but no one would be like disowning their grandmother because she voted for the wrong king. <laughs> no, but people might be beheading their wife. Um, like freaking. Uh, who I was think it? that would be r- really strange, actually. No, no, this was famously you know, done. Who, who was? It was the guy um, in Braveheart, the um, the, the the prince. Uh, I forget the one, the one who, who succeeded Edward the Longshank. Mm-hmm. His own wife led a revolt against him, and, and no, had she's him French. Yeah, so like <laughs> I mean, he was a king, though, right? Yeah, that, well, yeah, and there's there's a lot of brutal politics. I mean, freaking Oliver Cromwell. But, but that that's not a reality. That that, that that what I'm saying here is that that political reality that that was consigned to this particularly small set of aristocrats has in the democratic age been extended uh to to the population a whole and i want to i want to sort of trot this out to you brenton mm-hmm. uh you know th- there was an enormous number of, of conflicts across eastern europe in in the uh it, all throughout its history uh, but yeah. the only time where it turned ethnic cleansing was in the era where people were expected to have political allegiances that they voted on or supported. 
I think uh, the issue in, there in, is in, in Eastern Europe, you know, the Ottomans would take the territory and then the, then the Serbs mm -hmm. would and the Austro-Hungarians would, so on and so forth, back and forth, right? Yeah. But, but it wasn't until Tito went, oh, wait, the Germans were all, like, they were all politically in support of Hitler or something like that, that the ethnic cleansings really became an important feature of that reality. Well, that, that's because the ethnic lines didn't exist before that. I mean, the um, we, we like really to think disagree of with you yeah, there. no, no, it, it, it's again, flat it's a fact. out. <laughs> there, there, now there were peoples, uh, and there were there were nations. The ethnic lines existed, but they it's, weren't political. We can say the, the the fact of the matter is is that um, you know modern nationalism is what you blame for ethnic cleansing because they're using um, these things as organizing principles underneath the society. Um, and again, this would be another reason to check out my debate with JF because I go into the specifics of this and how these um, things are created as political realities that then escalate into violence. Um, but it's sort of beyond the debate of uh, the, the scope of this. I mean, I got Napoleonic nationalism, sure. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this, it, it seems to me that the, this is a common problem, right? The common problem is politicization, mass politicization. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, you it, know, it, it's sectarianism. Like it's, what, what is it that they did that? Um, there was a um, famous psychological thing. It might've been done by, um, uh, might have. I forget exactly the psychologist who did it, but they essentially took young children and put them in and gave them each like a team with a shirt. And they found that the kids immediately, when they encountered sure. the other tribe, like started making up stories and like stealing from them and wanting to fight them and giving themselves names. You know, yeah. this is a human tendency, but it, it it was inflamed specifically by political nationalism in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and led to some of the most horrific crimes against humanity. So what seen. seems to make this process better is to give everyone really, really clear boundaries and really, really clear, stable societies so that everyone knows like this territory is ours and that territory is yours and and sort have have clear controls and clear property and stability and to minimize circumstances where you all come in and try to argue over how to divide up a big pot of goodies i mean and what i really think mm -hmm. i want to avoid is to have some kind of spoil and this is what i, I i'm really afraid that the, the democrat the, the progressives are driving towards they're driving towards the circumstances where we're going to have a big national conversation about how to divide up a huge pot of wealth and when that happens, everyone is going to grab, they're, they're basically going to treat politics like war. And if they're on the losing side, they're going to go straight to war. I mean, I would be very surprised if we did go to war. I think it's going to be more individual acts of terrorism. I don't think the conditions in the United States are close enough to actual civil war, just because I've studied like the Spanish Civil War in depth. And it, it was way crazier than, than what we have now. That said, Americans are nuts. So who knows, maybe. <laughs> Um, but um, I, I think whether the liberals do that or not, I don't think it's going to be Joe Biden who does it because like Joe Biden's whole thing is trying to be the moderate candidate that rules over everyone and doesn't put anyone first. Yeah, but do you, you see yeah. the danger though that I'm pointing to here? I mean, there's definitely a danger of that. I would say if the Democrats overplay their hand and if they behave cruelly, yeah, there could be a huge problem. Um, I think also, you know, you've got a lot of people who are essentially in a death cult. Um, QAnon is, is a good would, example. But wouldn't democracy incentivize that? Because all these people voted for them and now they want to get paid back. I mean, and so wealth what, and what's power the incentive to take that. money from the people who didn't vote for you and give it to people who did vote for you. 
I mean, you would have a very difficult time doing that because we have the Constitution guarantees equal protection under the law. Oh, so, yeah, I forgot. That's why this never has happened in American history. Yeah. I mean, it's happened less in American history than than other countries. Um, I think that, you know, it's one of the few things that we have running with our system. But yeah, th this is a longer thing and I don't want to keep it's, sure, it's midnight, sure. so I don't want to keep Carissa up. Yeah. This has been a surprisingly productive debate. So yeah. thank you. Oh, yeah, it's been it's fun. It's fun. Um, sorry for me being a little bit badgery there, but I, I, I want my points a little bit more subtle than Brenton's. So I feel like I have to cut in at key moments. Otherwise, uh, I can't uh, make it as sharp as I need it to be. Yeah. Love you too. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually one more comment that we have from Gabriel K. And he does say a republic, if you can keep it, will echo in the minds of future generations. And I think that might be a nice little closing remark <laughs> mm -hmm. to end the, end the debate. Um, but I, I do, I want to thank both of you for coming on. I really um, appreciated you taking your time. And also as well for the audience, thank you for watching. Um, and definitely be sure to check out the links in the description and also the Kickstarter and, um, and the links for Brenton and Dave as well um, and check out their content. Um, also, don't forget to subscribe and like the video. Uh, that really helps us. So please do that and um, keep on sorting the reasonable from the unreasonable and join us for future debates. I know one is coming up here a little later this week. Be sure to join in. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.